0: Welcome to the latest episode of Your Wealth with Gemma Dale, a podcast series designed to help you create, grow and protect your wealth.
1: Hi, and welcome to this episode of Your Wealth. I'm Gemma Dale, NAB Trades, Director of SMSF and Investor Behaviour. One consequence of recent volatility in the market is we're finding a real shift in how our investors are behaving. People are paying much more attention, much closer attention to their portfolios. Cash is back at record levels on nabtrade, which is usually a sign that people are feeling a bit uncomfortable. And there's been a rotation away from our newer smaller investors' trading actively and our larger and more experienced investors are making some pretty sizable changes to their portfolio. So we're seeing everyone move around a little bit. I thought today we would speak to someone who's very experienced in markets and a professional stock picker about what he's doing in these circumstances. I'm joined by Henry Jennings of Marcus Today, who is a popular commentator. He also manages a portfolio. Henry, thanks so much for joining me.
0: Thanks, Gemma. You make me sound so old.
1: <laughs> that was not the intention. <laughs> this is experience. It's I, not I, age.
0: It, it was. It was the fact that it was so much experience. It's so much. It's uh, ex- well. Me sound like that.
1: Oh, well, I think <laughs> in this kind of environment, having seen it all before really helps, right? There are clearly many people out there whose yeah. the only experience of volatility was a three-week crash and a spectacular return to normal. So. This might be quite different for people. I'm going to make a quick apology in advance. Uh, I've just had COVID and my voice is ruined. Uh, so I'm not going to do a lot of talking, but that might be incredibly advantageous, right? We're going to listen to Henry and his thoughts on everything. Do you want to talk about...
0: It depends.
1: <laughs> do you want to talk about what you're seeing right now? we are talking about experience, you've seen this kind of market before, this unnerving feeling Talk to us about what you're seeing in the market at the moment.
0: Um, I guess, thanks, Joe I mean, I guess it is an unnerving feeling. And I have been around long enough to remember uh, one or two crashes, one or two pullbacks. Uh, back in 87, I was uh, in the London market. So I have seen, you know, the DFC, the, the Asian crisis, all those sorts of things. And as they always say, you know, this time it is different. And I guess... To some extent, it is different. Uh, It's always a different set of circumstances at the moment. We've got some big, big macro things happening in the market with geopolitical events in Ukraine tragically unfolding there. And a lot of people obviously got very worried about that uh, initially. And, of course, against that backdrop, we've had the perennial issue at the moment of inflation, which although isn't quite such a big problem here officially in Australia, I'm sure many uh, listeners will Have uh, inflation in their lives on a a daily basis and be seeing that on a daily basis. But certainly in the US, the UK, and various parts of Europe, inflation is a problem, supply chain issues coming out of COVID, et cetera. It is different this time. I don't think we've ever seen uh, a kind of a a market coming out with such stimulus, record low interest rates, record high asset prices, a a war, uh, supply chain issues. So although you kind of think you've seen it all before, you haven't really seen it all before, but there is certainly a generation of investors and fund managers as well that I guess haven't ever seen interest rates really go up. You know, I'm old enough to remember when I was paying 17% on my mortgage in London uh, and, in, and inflation was 10% at that stage. You know, in the US, inflation is 10% or soon, soon will be uh, with the fuel prices coming through uh, with those rises in the oil price. So, you know, there's Interest rates in the US, mortgage rates are sort of four percent. So times have, have really changed. I guess technology is partly to to blame for that, but times have changed. But certainly, you know, looking through in our market at the moment, the, the, the key advice that we're certainly giving to our subscribers was that although war is a is a tragic and horrible thing that is happening for financial markets, it's not that bad. If you like, all those um, materials have to be replaced buildings have to be rebuilt, concrete has to be poured, bricks has to be laid, etc. Skills and shortages, and people will have to do the work uh, when you're rebuilding a country or an economy. Same with you know, the tragic events in Lismore and uh, other places in northern New South Wales. So it's kind of stimulatory in some respects. And of course, we've got a budget coming up and an election coming up and the, and the market's not looking too bad. Certainly, in the U.S., it's bounced off its lows. We've we've bounced, and at the time we're recording this, we've had a, a very solid bounce led by the banking sector and also the material sector, with the BHP doing extraordinarily well. And now a massive part of our market. That's you know that that's primarily when you look at BHP and four banks, you're pretty much nailed half the market. You know half the ASX 200. BHP's 11%. And the uh, the rest of you know big four banks are 25-30 percent. So you're getting close to nearly 50% of the market in five stocks. So it, it's it's been interesting. It's been um, it's been a volatile ride. We've seen more volatility than we have in the past. But I think in some respects, 2021 was a year of complacency in terms of risk. We're also focused on you know the COVID and uh vaccinations and booster shots and isolation which obviously you've just gone through which can't have been easy but uh, 2022 is 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 kind of a different year there's more politics there's more geopolitics and uh, there's more risks and there's going to be more volatility.
1: Yeah it is quite an extraordinary time when you talk about all of those global events and scenarios packed into such a short period. I think for yeah. investors and personally it's so easy to get overwhelmed as you say, nothing like a weekend ISO to get you thinking, Um, <laughs> particularly when you've got a couple of kids at home, great fun. and But it does, it feels like there's so much happening. When I look at what our investors are doing and how they're responding, the larger, more experienced investors, as I mentioned, they are responding. They're thinking about what this means, but our younger investors are opting out. And I find that pattern really interesting they were happy to trade when our bigger investors were sitting sitting quiet and now it's going the other way do you think that's experience showing through people going this is the kind of market where you need to set yourself and plan
0: I think there is yes I think you know that there is a lot of noise out there at the moment a lot of noise whether it's Ukraine, whether it's floods, whether it's, you know, whatever it is, whether it's inflation, interest rates, uh, company specific noise, there is a lot of noise. And I think one of the keys that uh, experienced investors have is that their ability to kind of uh, phase out the noise and try and focus on the important things. And they, you know, they always talk about don't fight the Fed. And here we have, you know, a Federal Reserve which is trying to fight inflation. And their modest reactions of quarter point here, quarter point there. Okay, we're going to end up higher, but uh, you know that is a very modest rise in a very hot economy, and uh, fighting that inflation. So I think the long-term investors have seen some of this before. Or they've got a plan and they stick to it. Whereas I think a lot of the the younger people that have come to this market have seen it as um, somewhat easy way to make money in in some respects you know we just buy some shares and and don't they always go up and unfortunately as as we know Gemma, shares don't always go up uh they sometimes go down as well i know it's a big revelation here uh but shares do go down as well as up and it is all about timing to some extent and you do tend to get with confidence and with optimism you get this sort of frothy money coming in towards the end and then that tends to be the first kind of money that disappears uh, when things get a little bit a um, little bit more chaotic a little bit more worrisome for them uh, they just think you know well i've only got a couple of thousand dollars or I've I've lost some money on this, maybe I'll just uh, give up the stock market for a little while and and wait till things get better. Whereas the long-term investors, people running their own self-managed super funds, et cetera, will focus on, on income, will focus on solid companies with limited levels of debt, or at least controllable levels of debt, because we are seeing interest rates rise and those that can see and pass through inflationary pressures. Uh, the banks are a classic example. The banks have been a fantastic performer, really been driving the market higher. And it's it's all to do with that net interest margin. And when interest rates go up, the banks do quite well because of it. There does come a point where uh, borrowing sort of starts to slacken off as, as people go, well, you know what? I'm not going to buy that new house because things are getting a bit expensive on the mortgage front and petrol's gone up. So there is a sweet spot for banks. And at the moment, I'm not sure we've reached that because the RBA is still very reluctant to uh, to move at all. But uh, certainly, I think those with a plan, those that can uh, eliminate the noise, because a lot of it is noise. And a lot of it is also designed to create business to some extent, You know, brokers, uh, news channels, Uh, All these things, a lot of them thrive on uh, eyeballs, brokerage, commissions, uh, deals being done. So they're they're in the game of generating um, fear and greed to some extent, and the market will feed on that. But uh, those with the long-term horizons, a good plan will see this through Um, and have seen it through. You know, the index was down at 6,800. Here we are at 7,400. Uh, while we're recording this, and you know, that, that's a significant bounce. The US has had a significant bounce. Tesla's banging on the door of a thousand bucks again. You know, things things have changed very quickly. I guess that, that's one of the things that, that's happened in this market compared to say, you know, when I first started in the industry, it's just the speed, the velocity, the pace of these moves, the change. Things move massively in a short space of time on, on snippets of information. But again, if you can if you can sort of silence the noise and find your calm and still place and keep your plan in place, uh, I think you do well through these sorts of periods.
1: That point about speed is so true. It is quite fascinating to watch and I've been in markets a while and it still shocks me just how quickly things are moving at the moment and Mm. it's uh, it's dramatically quicker than during the GFC, for example, and that felt shocking when it happened and this is much, Mm. much faster. So you're tuning out the noise that's your job what are you looking at in this environment
0: I'm trying to tune out the noise gemma're we're, we're all human and we all get distracted we all get um, you know fearful at some times and, and greedy at other times so I, I try and tune out the noise it's not always easy it's not like you can put the the boast noise cancelling headphones on and all will be well it doesn't work like that we are all um, humans but i I certainly have been trying to focus I guess on picking loaf-hanging fruit uh, stocks and sectors that have been very much in favor where it's easy to see the narrative i i tend to look at uh, i'm I'm a story person i'm a narrative kind of guy i like narratives around a sector around a stock uh and especially in mining stocks I, i do like mining stocks because there is a clear um lineation, there's a clear line of sight, if you like, in terms of the milestones, the catalysts that will happen uh, along the way, whether it's the the drilling, the exploration, the results, the assays, then we go into the studies, the pre-fees, the the bankable feasibility studies, the um, the funding, the offtake agreements, the construction, the production, all that sort of stuff, they're all key milestones and they're all catalysts for upgrades or uh, sometimes downgrades, of course, if things don't go all that well. So, so I like looking at those sorts of stocks. Uh, I have to say, at the moment, especially because they're relatively safe. And for me, you know, I know a lot of people hate mining stocks and hate investing in, you know, uh, whether it's gold miners, nickel, copper, whatever. Um, but for me, it's it's one of the only sectors in the market where the prices of the commodity they produce are published every day. Now. I would struggle, I think, to find the price of data storage at Next DC. I would struggle to find the wholesale price that Kogan are buying uh, their latest air fryer at um, compared to their retail price. So, you know, for for me, looking at what. Uh, the companies actually producing and the costs. I know the costs that they are producing it at because they publish those very regularly with quarterly updates. So you know the all-in sustaining costs. You know the production costs of, of an ounce of gold or a ton of copper, and I can see the price of that on on the LME. Let's let's forget the whole nickel thing, which is a debacle. But um, you can see that on the LME, and these companies can hedge. They can sell production forward and lock it in, Eddie, to some extent. So. I like those mining stocks because they have clear catalysts, they have clear um, product pricing, whereas you know, I don't know what Tyro's making on its um, every time the machine goes boop in the mornings, or or um, you know one of these you know big stocks, uh, even you now even the banks I don't know how much they're making on a mortgage until they tell me six months later that their net interest margin is whatever it is. So I like mining stocks, Gemma, and I, uh, the sector that I've been focusing on a lot, of course, is lithium, the, the white um, gold rush at the moment, the white powder rush, the white line fever. And it has been a, a fever and it, and it won't last. It, it won't last. The, the last white powder fever that we had uh, was infant formula, of course. And we had you know the likes of A2, Blackmoors, Bellamy's, all these kind of stocks going absolutely bananas It seems like only yesterday, but it was some time ago. Now we've got lithium stocks doing a similar thing uh, because there is this massive demand for electric vehicles. And because we're seeing oil at 115, 120, or whatever it is on, on the day, and petrol prices, you know, you go and fill up your tank now, it's a shock. I had to do it twice at the weekend. I was on a bit of a trip, and I had to do it twice at the weekend, and it was $110 both times. And I'm just looking and thinking, hmm, this is not, now this doesn't, um, you know, petrol engines are um, a thing of the past in some respects. It's just a question of how long it takes to transition. So lithium demand is, is, is huge, but supply, mining companies take a long time to bring the supply on, five, 10 years to bring in a mine. So, you know, there is this I guess two or three-year period before all this supply comes on as a result of the lithium boom, and in the meantime, investors I think can make hay while the sun shines, or make lithium while the electric vehicles shine. But um, so that's certainly a sector I've been looking at recently, and it's not, you know, it's not rocket science, and it's not um, difficult to spot these sectors. Many commentators have talked about this, and it's not difficult to spot the runners and riders. That are doing very well out of it, and you can you can pick and choose, I guess, to some extent, where you want to be in the cycle. Whether you want to be early stage with a an explorer uh, who's just found something, and there's lots of speculative money in those sorts of stocks, or whether you want to go a little bit further down uh, the um, the sort of the, the the catalyst curve, if you like, uh, and look at ones that have got funding, that have got offtake agreements, or ones that are building stuff uh, that are about to come into production. Core lithium is one that I've held for donkey's years i'd almost forgotten that i'd bought it many years ago and it, it had a you know it was stuffed away somewhere in a bottom drawer of mine I think I bought it about eight or ten cents and here they are at a dollar 25 and uh, you know as they come close to production you've seen that that change uh, that change in the valuation of the company so you know you can pick your point in the cycle uh, and you can go for a, a company that uh, satisfies those requirements and of course there's more risk, and more reward at various different points. There's far less risk in a producer, for instance, and and then you're backing on uh, lithium pricing. Whereas with an explorer or uh, or someone that's looking at a final investment decision or bankable feasibility study, there's there's more risk, but there also is more reward potentially uh, when they get the tick of approval. So that's certainly a sector that I've been looking at quite strongly. And we've done very well out of that sector in there for Marcus today, I have to say.
1: So that's the second time we've discussed the lithium sector in a fortnight, which is quite extraordinary. I don't think we've ever discussed a sector twice as having heaps of potential in a fortnight, and it'll give a lot of investors a lot of comfort. I found your comments about how transparent mining companies are, and particularly just the sector, being able to look at your costs, being able to look at your your pricing uh, on a daily or monthly basis, and it's so much more uh, practical, I guess, to be able to analyze a company on that basis. The most traded stock on NAB Trade for I won't say 18 months has been Fortescue Metals uh, yeah. for exactly that reason. It's a you know it's a an iron ore play almost pure, and it has been traded by really high value investors really, really high value, and they trade it every single day and they've been doing very nicely thank you out of it for 18 months. We've never seen that before, but it's amazing. Tops the numbers every day.
0: It, it, it's funny. I mean, I guess Fortescue is, is the classic um, re-rating story. There it was with BHP and Rio, uh, number one and number two in iron ore, uh, Fortescue promised they'd be the third force in iron ore. No one really believed them. Uh, they were suffering under a mountain of debt. The iron ore price was at low levels. No one ever thought Twiggy would really get the project off the ground. Uh, he had had a chequered history, I guess, with anaconda nickel, uh, which went uh, to the wall. So it, no one was really giving him, especially in Australia, I guess much um, credibility and much sort of uh, optimism that he would get it going. But, of course, the US guys were happy to fund it. And uh, the Chinese, he was very good at uh, cultivating relationships with them. And then you get the iron ore price going up and, and you emerge with a company which is paying down, paid down debt extraordinarily well. They've been extraordinarily disciplined in getting the cost down, even though they have got a slightly inferior product to BHP and Rio. And just have turned, you know, what was what, what could have been just another little mining stock that w- want to be uh, into, as you, you know, as he promised, the third force in iron ore mining and to the extent that it it galvanized the whole sector really because it made BHP fat and happy uh, look at themselves and go you know what if Fortescue can get their price of their you know a dry metric ton of iron ore down to 12 13 bucks us why are we stuck at 30 what are we doing wrong and and it's 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 i guess it's classic c- competition to to get the big guys who were sitting there with a the monopoly position to um, to pull their finger out and get things going and it's been a great boom for the country great boom for bhp and rio shareholders as well not only just to fortescue so it's it's been a massive you know it's understatement says this a, a massive success story but it has been but it, it shows you that the, i guess the, the the catalysts along the way you know, from a, a thought an idea to something that's got funding that suddenly that produces that gets cost down that then just generates so much cash and so much generosity to um its shareholder i mean biggest shareholder andrew forrest of course um so it's it's just a classic and there's many companies that will do the similar journey maybe not quite so or quite so well uh maybe not in iron ore but that you you can see that you know the 20 million dollar 30 million 50 million dollar company goes to 400 which then goes to 600 which then has an acquisition that goes to a billion and and you know this, this is kind of the stories in mining which is kind of why I like them, because they can change change your life a little bit to some extent.
1: You mentioned the London Metals Exchange a moment ago <laughs> and we kind of can't yeah. ignore it. So like there will that. be many listeners who are not across this story, don't follow such things terribly closely with good reason. Uh, yeah. Could you talk us through it? Because it does have implications.
0: It does. I mean, the London Metal Exchange has been going for 145 years. And I remember when I was uh, a kid starting out in London on the Stock Exchange, I had a mate that worked over there while uh, the Hunt brothers were trying to corner the silver market. And he used to take me down to the uh, the floor of the London metal exchange in Leadenhall Market, which was fascinating because they had rings. They have a metal ring where they trade a metal for five minutes, and it was amazing to watch. I I grew up trading uh, open outcry options and futures in London. That was my background before I came to Australia. So to watch this five-minute flurry of uh, volatility and screaming and shouting, it was not a million miles from what I did anyway, but the, the fascinating thing was that for four and a half minutes, They sat there doing nothing, looking at their watches. And then for the last 30 seconds, they went nuts. Now, um, it is a very archaic way of trading, I have to say. And in this technological age, prices have moved away from the the metal ring, but there's still a ring. And the nickel market is fascinating. And the LME has really, really stuffed this up because it experienced a, a massive short squeeze from a Chinese billionaire who... Has a nickel company. He has a nickel company called Ting Shang, uh, Sing I think I probably pronounced that badly, but um, he has a big nickel company and was selling forward uh, the nickel that he had um, that um, that uh, he had because um, you know the nickel prices on the LME were quite high, and he sold too much forward. He was he was too short of uh, of nickel, and the nickel he was going to be delivering. Was not going to be the standard that the LME required. So, I guess the the same people that were behind GameStop, the same people that were behind you know all those Reddit memes, seized this opportunity. I'm not saying the same people directly, but the same kind of thought process went into it and drove nickel prices up to a hundred thousand US dollars a ton plus. Margin calls everywhere. They suspended the market, closed the market. Chaos ensued. And even when they brought it back after. Uh, the uh, the Chinese billionaire sorted out his margin requirements because most of this was done on OTC or off-market, off these were over-the-counter transactions, then um, once he sorted his margin out, then they let the market restart, canceled so many trades, lost so much credibility. It was ridiculous. Um, and then they brought in limits of how much the, the nickel price uh, could move. And every day for the last few days, we've seen the nickel price. The first limit was 5%, so it fell 5%. The second limit was 10%, so it fell 10%. They brought in 15% limit down, and that moved down 15% because nickel trades elsewhere. And it was half the price that it was trading on the LME. So inevitably, it was going to fall limit down every day until it found a level. Last night... Uh, As we speak, it was the first night that nickel didn't fall by the limit that it could possibly fall in on the LME. And we did actually see some buyers starting to emerge. Now, nickel, of course, is all tied up with the lithium story, which we've been talking about, Gemma, all tied up with electric vehicles, all tied up with this transition we're seeing from fuel intensive to material intensive. And uh, I guess nickel has long over been looked overlooked rather uh, against maybe copper. Uh, And we do have some some big lithium, uh, big nickel companies rather in Australia and some wannabes as well. So it is kind of important in the big scheme of the electric vehicle thing. But the whole LME debacle has not engendered a lot of confidence, certainly in the LME or pricing. It is now starting to settle down, which is good. And we may see some price rises for our nickel stocks because of that. Uh, BHP, of course, is one of those. Uh, nickel stocks, which uh, has been uh, pushing towards or getting away from a little bit of their reliance on iron ore and diversifying. So it's been an interesting time in metals, and I think it did affect other metals as well, other commodities. Because you know, if you're getting a margin call for your nickel position, usually these guys are trading copper, they're trading zinc, they're trading you know iron ore, they're trading all sorts of different metals. Uh, as CTA's commodity traders, uh, they are beholden to margin in, in not just uh, nickel but also elsewhere so I think it caused a little bit of commodity price ruptions, which uh, hopefully now have settled down a little bit.
1: Yeah it's been an interesting time it's uh, mm. for those of us who have never been in the ring and who've never had this sort of on the floor experience just watching it on a screen <laughs> it's still pretty fascinating. It's,
0: it's so much fun i got to say you know it was it was it's complete chaos uh, at the time and people look at you and wonder how you can cope with it um and it, it i guess Part of it also is it teaches you, if you're in a crowd of 100 people trading something, which is what I used to do back in the 80s, it it does teach you two things. One is to be able to listen to two conversations at once or three conversations at once because you can hear what's going on on the other side of the pit, which is very useful, although my wife doesn't attest to that because she doesn't think I'm listening to her. Um, But the other one, I guess, is the ability to switch off that noise that we've talked about to, to focus on On what's in front of you and what you're seeing as opposed to what's happening over the other side of the trading pit does that make sense
1: that's such an interesting description actually of how one has to learn to behave in that environment i think for those of us who joined the market long after the period where you got to be in those open outcry environments it's always fascinating to see what original traders learned that's quite different looking at a screen
0: Oh, risk risk management. Uh, you know, I, you know, we we. I used to trade um, the first day of a lot of privatisations in the UK in, in the 80s when Thatcher was privatising anything that wasn't nailed down. And my risk management was I would have the buy slips in one hand and the sell slips in the other hand, and I would compare how big the pile was to the buy and to the sell, and work out whether I was long or short. I took no account of what I actually bought, how many I would bought. It was just how many slips I had. Um, that was risk management in those days, pre-computers, pre computers, pre Uh, option model pricing. Um, It was just uh, all done in our heads. It was quite scary looking back on it.
1: Sorry. For anyone who's listening to this, I'm on mute when Henry's talking, mostly because I'm laughing too much. (laughs) I thought it's quite funny. You're you're like a celebrity where they don't read their press, they just weigh it. That was always the story that you would have. You, you You want to be in the media but you don't want to see what they say about you. You just weigh your press rather than reading it. Although, again, now it's digital. How do you do that?
0: Yeah, count the clicks. Yeah, well, it was it was it was strange. Strange days, I have to say. And you know, the boss of company and say, "How are you trading Rolls Royce today?" And you say, "Oh, hang on a second, I think I'm long, but I'm not sure how many." He said, "I oh, should probably sell something just to get back into balance." So that that was how we yeah that's how we rolled. It was it was scary, and we we used to make a lot of money. I have to say. <laughs>
1: it's, um it's an extraordinary way to do it. We're talking about people making very careful <laughs> considered moves at this time. You're like, "Oh I know, no, sorry, I just I've
0: stuffed that. it up." <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's um so outside the mining sector, what are you looking at at yeah. the moment? I loved your description of the white powder. I mean, we're big fans of white powder on the Australian market, aren't we? It's um
0: we, we are.
1: It uh, we'll take yeah, anything guess, with white I, powder in it. Yeah. <laughs> uh,
0: um I I guess, you know, at the moment it it's it's we've got a market that's that's bifurcating to some extent between this this whole value and growth argument and, and one day everyone's in value and the next day everyone's in growth i'm i'm not you know it's it's i find it hard to distinguish between the two at the end of the day you, you try and find things that are going to make you money things that have got more upside than downside Uh, that are easy to go with the flow. The banks is a classic at the moment because you can go with the flow. And and you look at a stock like Macquarie, and I have to uh, declare that I did at one stage work for Macquarie. And, um, you know, I I know how they work. Although it was 20 years ago, I still know how the the culture works, uh, how the risk management works. And and they're just smart people. And not only are they smart, but they're also... um, pushing into, you know, the the, the kings of infrastructure. I was around uh, when we, um, (coughs) excuse me, I was around when we invented infrastructure in Australia not so much invented bridges, et cetera, not the Bradfield and the Harbour Bridge, but more, you know, we started out doing Hills Motorway. I don't know if you remember, Gemma, when Hills Motorway first listed... Um, And no one had any idea. That's now the M2. No one had any idea. What was scary, actually, is I drove on the M2 the other day, and I seem to remember the first toll on the M2 was $2.50. It's now $8.45. So that that tells you something about the attraction of infrastructure stocks, especially toll roads. And Macquarie were the first guys uh, to really get involved in those private toll roads, Hills Motorway, which then morphed ultimately into Transurban and Atlas Arterial, which was for a long time considered um, sort of bad MIG or bad Macquarie Infrastructure Group, and and Transurban was sort of the the good uh, MIG. So that's a really interesting sector, and they are the kings of it. Now, the world is going to need more infrastructure, whether that's battery charging stations, whether it's, uh, you know, the US is falling apart. Uh, You know, you look at the US engineers report on their infrastructure, their bridges are collapsing, their roads are falling apart. All this requires investment and Macquarie is pretty much the king of this space, global business, very focused on clean and green to some extent, infrastructure spending, deal makers, very entrepreneurial. That is a cracking stock. Here we are at 200 bucks and some change, Uh, they have fallen back after their uh, results because as usual, um, you know, Macquarie tends to, um, you know, they tend to sort of underplay their hand somewhat, and they keep their cards very close to their chest, and then they surprise to the upside. And the stock came back, you know, to uh, 175 bucks uh, a couple of weeks ago, and here we are back at the 200. So, you know, that that's an easy kind of uh, opportunity. I know the markets rallied considerably, but 175 was just. Now, bargain basement time. So th- this is a quality stock, and I'm sure, you know, in the fullness of time, it's just had an upgrade by one broker. We'll see that stock up to 250, and it's even paying a dividend now. Something that was unheard of when I worked for them. You know, paying a dividend. What's that? We don't do those sorts of things at MacBank. Um, but uh, you know, that to me is 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 still a, a very good opportunity. And you can just look at it. You now, and you you talk about you know you have a, a number of people that just trade one stock or, or just trade four. To- You You could easily do the same with with Macquarie um, and just trade the volatility in that stock. So I think that's a a good opportunity in in the banking sector going forward, especially as the world needs more and more infrastructure.
1: That's such an interesting one. I will never forget there was a guy I worked with some years ago, like a long Mm. time ago, who also worked at Macquarie somewhat briefly, and I think he got made redundant from there. So he was still incredibly attached to the company. He had 100%. He set up a self-managed super fund explicitly so he could just buy Macquarie shares. That was all he owned. And then the GFC came along and they were down to $16, and I will remember the price till I die, I think. Um, And he was still in it. And everyone was like, mate, you're literally going to lose your retirement savings. He was like, it's a brilliant company. I will never regret this decision. And I suspect if nothing's changed in his scenario, I certainly haven't gone to check. Uh, that wasn't a bad bet. If he was buying more at $16 back then.
0: No, I mean, it wasn't a bad bet. And, you know, again, that's that's fear and greed. All the, You know, at the time the GFC was more than just noise. Uh, the, the, the GFC was a significant financial event caused by over leverage and, and just complete silliness on behalf of uh, u.s institutions hiding things off their books and then uh, creating a, a situation where liquidity just disappeared overnight I, I think you know we've learnt from the gfc even if no one got punished, but we have learnt from the GFC in terms of leverage, in terms of gearing. Now, there's still off balance sheet issues. And we saw that with the nickel market because all that short position was was held off kind of off the books to some extent. And then you get chaos and then liquidity dries up. But I think, you know, I, I, the GFC was a very specific event, but it did infect everybody. And Macquarie certainly wasn't uh, immune to that. But uh, I think those days have long gone and they probably learned their lesson.
1: Yeah, I think we all learned a lot of lessons during the GFC. It was pretty exciting. Yeah,
0: Very yeah, educational
1: period. We'll call it an educational period. Are there yes. parts of the market that you're specifically avoiding at the moment? We're talking about the things that you do find exciting and interesting when we tune out the sort of extraordinary global scenarios we have to factor in. But is there anything that you think is looking really dicey?
0: I don't know about dicey. I think, um, you know, some of the places that I, I, I don't tend to look are things like the fund managers. Um, every now and then I look at some of the valuations. And I, I was relatively bullish on Magellan when it hit 20 bucks, only because it had fallen so far. But then, of course, we also had Hamish still at the helm, uh, that got thrown into complete disarray when he um, has stepped back from the company. So all bets are off there. and. You know, it's fund managers have had a really tough time, and I think that's going to continue. The rise of ETFs has really hurt them. The wealth platforms as well. I'm not a massive fan of the wealth platforms. Uh, I think you know ultimately they become a little generic and it's it gets very competitive. And we've seen that with some of the, the platforms and uh so just you know, on they, wealth
1: they, platforms, are you talking X Plan and sorry, not X Plan, Net Wealth and uh, the, uh, those sorts of guys? Or yeah, are you net talking wealth, more
0: net, BT? No, more more so premium, uh, you know, the net wealth, the hubs, the baburas, yeah. all those kind of all those kind of stocks. You know, you've only got to look at premium, which it was, it was trading at a premium. It was, it was going nuts at one stage, and it's, it's back to uh, 70 cents. They really have fallen out of favor. And I'm not sure what the catalyst is going to be in those stocks. I have to say, you know, Hub 24 hasn't done too badly, but it's been just going sideways. And, you know, you have things like net wealth, which has struggled a little bit to, to find direction. I just think there's a lot of competition in that space, a lot of competition for the fund manager dollar. As well. Now, all that money that's leaking out of uh, Magellan, it has to go somewhere. And I suspect it's going into uh, ETFs rather than fund managers because you know, we, we've seen the problems with reliance on uh, a rock star or a, a sort of um, you know, key man risk, which uh, is always an issue. So that, that's an area that I'm not particularly um, enamored with at the moment and probably won't be. I guess casinos is another one. Uh, there's only you we've know, really only got two or three with Sky City in there as well. But Star, certainly that, that's got some problems at the moment, very much playing out in the press. And, of course, we've got um, we've got um, James Packer and his casino as well with Crown. Their problems are well known. That hopefully will come to an end when uh, it gets taken out. So um, there's not too many opportunities there. But generally, the rest of the market, there's nothing i I avoid tech is probably the most risky, and that's very much a sentiment-driven sector. And it seems to be a sentiment-driven sector by um, one stock, which is which is Block, the artist formerly known as Square, which was formerly known as Afterpay in Australia. Although it's you know it's a somewhat different company that they've merged, but that tends to drive the sentiment in the tech sector. So I'm still not a massive fan of the the buy now pay later space and not charging into tech stocks. I have got some tech stocks in my portfolio um, and some have cratered and some are on their way back up, but they are very much a confidence kind of play in the market. So, uh, you know, as, as the market rises and holds it, that's, I think that's important that it holds it and gets back to a more Rational settings, we see the fixed index in the US, the volatility start to drop, and it's already back down to 23, having peaked up around 36, 37. So we are seeing more normality return. As that returns, confidence will return, and we could see a rebound in the tech sector. But generally, you know, I I try and look, as I said earlier, for for stocks that have tailwinds that kind of the low hanging fruit, the easy narrative, because you know, why fight against the tide if you don't have to? When the floodwaters are rising and you step out into those floodwaters, it, it's it's fraught with danger. I'd much rather, you know, get in my dinghy and uh, or my, my kayak and, and, and kayak the floodwaters rather than try and row upstream.
1: I think that makes an enormous amount of sense. The narrative helps a great deal. I think for a lot of investors there's a... A temptation yeah. to try to understand really complex stuff, or believe you understand it, well, uh, well, and, and I, feel yeah. that going with the narrative is a cheap option, but it's it's not a bad option.
0: It's, it's not a bad option, and you know, human beings, we are pre-programmed with with certain things. Facial recognition is one of them. We can recognize people really well, but we also identify with with stories and narratives, and they and they and they um they drive emotion in us. Uh, sometimes that emotion is extreme, and at leads to very emotional share prices both up and down but I think you know the narrative is is a very important part of it of course if you're looking at the narrative the technical side of things the technical analysis side of things is is the way some people measure that narrative to some extent They, they try and rationalize it with science as opposed to uh, emotion but they rationalize it with science and put in you know squiggly lines and 30 day moving averages and all sorts of candlesticks and different colors and all that sort of stuff i'm colorblind so it doesn't mean too much for me but um you know that that that's a way for human beings to to make the narrative logical and science based as opposed to emotion based but I, I do like to keep the emotion in the investment process when it's useful not all the time because obviously you know you can hang on too long you can be stubborn you can be stupid but uh, certainly going with that narrative is is important i think sometimes
1: if you started in the pit and you were trading actively with other people like literally seeing their faces while you're doing it, i can imagine that would have been an essential part of how you learned right you would be reading other people's faces oh. and voices and getting the story from them
0: uh, well, exactly. And, you know, even the, the down times when there wasn't much going on, because it wasn't always madness and chaos and adding up what you're long and what you're short of. You know, we would play um, trading games, spoof games uh, that would, again, would be about reading people, reading emotions, uh, that sort of stuff. So it was it was an important education in some respects. And I I did learn from some of the best at the time that were very good at, you know, people would walk in with a with a buy pad and uh, very visible. And uh, then they'd ask a price in a certain option and everyone would assume because they had the buy pad in their hand and a pen in their hand that they were a buyer. So they jumped the price up to reflect the fact that uh, they had a buyer on the, on the deck and the guy turned out to be a seller and he was just spoofing the whole time and just getting the price up. Uh, by by lulling you into that false sense of security, so there were lots of tricks that we used to to use in those days, and I'm sure that in this technological world, there's still similar tricks being played, but maybe the algos are playing them now rather than uh, the the traders on the floor.
1: Oh, we don't need to scare anybody about the algos. No, <laughs> yeah. it's, uh, let's let's not. We'll we'll go let's with not. the narrative, right? That's much better. Yeah. Is there anything? Yeah else that you feel investors should be thinking about or being aware of in this particular at this particular moment in time?
0: I I think it's important to acknowledge that there is this is going to be a volatile period for so many reasons I think there is a um, it is very important to acknowledge that this is not the easy money round this is not 2020 2021. This is not the bounce from COVID. This is this is gonna be harder this year. We have a federal election in Australia, we have midterms in the US, we have a war, we have inflation, we have interest rates. There is a lot going on. And the thing that I think would be really important for investors is to one is to go through their portfolios and stress test them. That now the central banks are very good at this. And they, after GFC, of course, because they stuffed it up before then. But they were, they're were they very good now at stress testing the banks, putting them under different scenarios. Macquarie was a, a great institution for doing this. And I, I spent a lot of my time going through limits and, and working out volatility limits, et cetera, and where our exposure was in terms of currency, commodities, all those kind of things. So I think it's very important to stress test your portfolio. I think it's also very important to ensure that you're not 100% invested all the time. I know that we love to be able to go as fast as you can for as long as you can. But it's also important that when the dips come, you're not forced to sell stuff to buy other stuff so that you have a cash buffer. Now that cash depends on what you deem is appropriate to yourself, obviously, but leverage can really, really kill you. So be careful of leverage, have a cash buffer, have the ability to be flexible and nimble and adjust as the uh, the world unfolds this year, I, I think that's that's very important because over uh, is uh, is is a killer, an absolute killer. You ask uh, Babcock and Brown or Orco, you know, they will tell you that or uh, Evergrande. So leverage will will kill you. Um, but equally, I think there are times, you know, we, we find us. I always think of the market a bit like a racetrack sometimes, in that you know when there are, when there are corners, you take it carefully. And you, uh, you try and pick the racing line and you make sure that you're just maybe not quite as on the edge as you should be, or you could be. But when there's straights that you open up the throttle, uh, 2021 was a was a straight. And that was the time to open up the throttle and, and squeeze on, on and go for it. Uh, 2022 is the corners and uh, it's, there's going to be some corners. So it's, it's probably good to pick the racing line, be patient and uh, be a little bit more cautious than maybe you have been in the past. And at the end of the day, you know, a, a good investor is making maybe 9%, 10% per annum. You look at the Future Fund or you look at, you know, even Warren Buffett, the world's greatest investor, you know, 20% per annum, which is, you know, he's done it for 50 years. That, that's that's huge. That's the most powerful force in nature is compound interest. If you're making 10 to 15% year in, year out, you are going to nail it. You don't have to try for 100% one year and, and you do your dough the next year and you're back to square one. Uh, that's slow and steady and keeping to your plan is very important.
1: I think that's incredibly valuable advice, and after watching far too many F1 races, uh, <laughs> the analogy is very apt. Yeah. It feels very apt right now. Uh,
0: well, I, I guess it's even more apt for me because I've, I found myself on a racetrack on, on, on the weekend, and uh, I took my car around the track for the first time. I'd taken this car around a track, and I was absolutely awful. I was so <laughs> slow; it was it was frightening. I hadn't I hadn't been on a racetrack for about 15 years, and I had these cars passing me uh mx5s passing me with 17 year old (laughs) girls that hadn't even got their license went past me i had a hyundai went past me and i was in a porsche and i'm just thinking you are an embarrassment you are an absolute embarrassment to your your brand your car it's not an expensive porsche by the way um (laughs) but it was still a lot of fun but um you know it does it does teach you as well you know when you come back from a day like that everyone says to you so how fast you go and you go, well, you know, I've got up to 140, 150. I said, oh, that's pretty good. And then you think, yeah, well, it's the timing of the lap that's important. <laughs> it's not how fast you get to, it's how quickly you get round the track. And it's the same with investing. It's not how quickly you go to odd periods of time. It's how quickly you get round the lap and what your lap time is in the end rather than, oh yeah, I got to 200 Ks. And then I spun the car and hit the fence and Let's get the, it, then and I, I put came it in back the wall. <laughs> Exactly. I put it in, and it came back on a truck. I mean, that—that's no use. But everyone goes, "Oh, so how fast are you go?" And you go, well, "I went 200 kilometres an hour." And then I put it into a wall. I mean, you don't tell them that bit. So, you know, it's—it's it's important. It's important to, you know, for me, it's important to get round the track and get the car home.
1: It's uh, well, we'll keep our fingers crossed. This is the year that we don't put it in the wall, right?
0: <laughs> exactly. No offs.
1: No offs. Henry, you are out in the world talking to investors all the time. Marcus Today, you guys provide a great deal of research and insights for investors. Where do people go to keep up with you?
0: Um, They can come to to marcustoday.com.au. They can sign up there for a a free trial. We've also got a really active Facebook discussion group. We've got 3,500 members there. I know people don't really like Facebook, but uh, it is actually remarkably touch wood and whistle It is a remarkably well-behaved group with people that um, we don't get too many trolls and we don't get too many people that we have to uh, kick out for inappropriate comments. So, but first off, marcustoday.com.au, sign up for a two-week trial. Uh, We'd love to have you as part of our community.
1: I will clarify for people as well, it's Marcus, M-A-R-C-U-S, not markets, uh, because it's important to get that right. You'll get something else if you go to markets. Henry Jennings from Marcus today. Thank you so much for joining us.
0: Gemma, it's been an absolute pleasure.
1: Thank you so much for listening. Also, as always, we love hearing from you. We've received amazing feedback. We love getting your questions and requests for guests. Please just email us at yourwealth@nab.com.au, and I look forward to talking to you again soon. I'm Gemma Dale. Thanks for listening.
0: Thanks for listening to Your Wealth with Gemma Dale. To stay up to date, please subscribe to this podcast series or email us at yourwealth at nab.com.au. Please note that any advice provided in this podcast has been prepared without taking into account your objectives, financial circumstances or needs. Before acting, you should consider the appropriateness of the information. To find out more, please visit nab.com.au.